0: The thing about a pig, you use everything. I mean, I've, I've cooked up, you know, crumbed pigtails before, um, used everything from the offal of the pig, you know, all the way up to, you know, the pig's head and the pig's ears. I make a crispy, um, crispy pig's ears with balsamic vinegar and chilli. Everything is usable on a pig, and that's what I like about it.
1: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Growing up in a family with a rich and diverse culinary background, Adrian Richardson always knew a career in hospitality would be much more than just a job. Now with a career that encompasses TV and his own restaurants, he has placed whole beast butchery at the heart of everything that he does. Adrian, you're kind of like an unofficial pork king down under. How did the interest in pork start for you? (laughs)
0: <laughs> the pork king, I like that, or maybe the ambassador of pork, or maybe I could be the dictator of pork, or something. We could go crazy here. Um, I just love cooking, cooking pork. It's such a wonderful animal, and I, I can get sort of like uh Homer on on this, but it's it's one of those uh, beasts that you can do so much with. I mean, if you're looking at, uh, at, at like a at, a at cattle, I mean, you basically make a steak, you brace some meat, but with a pig, you can make just about anything. You know, everything from from roasting a baby suckling pig, which I'm sure you're going to ask him about later on, to you know, like making a perfect roast. You've got ham, you've got small goods, you've got the the, the head making brawn. All of these things are such wonderful products that you can make from pork, and that's why I love that little piggy so much.
1: <laughs> well, you've got an in-house butcher at La Luna. Is, t- tell us about the process there. Are you getting whole pigs in and sort of using a, every element? What, what are you doing there in the kitchen?
0: Look, look, Angelo's been with us now for probably 18 years. He's, um, I believe... His ancestors were the butchers for the Roman emperors. His uh, his butchery credentials go back that far. Um, and um, what what he he's been amazing. I mean, we've been able to work together in the kitchen. You mentioned the kitchens mostly chefs and then butchers usually live somewhere else. Um, but to bring the two together, you bring those skills into the kitchen. So we've actually, you know, adding more chef work to his butchery and he's adding more butchery skills to our chef work. So, I mean, that's been fantastic. That, that, and that's allowed us to cure, or we make our own salami, capicola, lardo, uh, prosciutto, uh, pancetta, all of the small goods that we make, um, you know, for La Luna Bistro and Bivia Bar, are made on the premises at La Luna, and we're making undulia now, which is a fantastic thing. But on top of that, where you know, we also do one of our favourite things is is the uh, the roast pork barrel, um, you know, cri- crispy, crackling all the way around it, nice lawn on the inside, the belly around it to keep it fat, and a nice seasoning on the inside. That's like a, a staple at La Luna Bistro. But then, um, I mean, it's going to happen pretty soon. Is the um is the salami making Season or the small goods making season we will probably um, break down about 15 to 20, 200 kilo pigs. To process over the next couple of months to keep us self-sufficient in small goods. And that's an amazing, amazing time. It just, the kitchen goes uh, pretty much flat chat from about five in the morning to get everything made. Um, you know, we'll make cottachino one day, uh, salami a couple of days after that. You sort of break it down a bit, but that's, that's where the, the real, uh, hard work goes, uh, for the next couple of months. And Angelo will be very, very busy, a little bit grumpy at times, but he'll be very busy. <laughs>
1: Well, with this focus of using the whole uh, pig and doing so many things with it, how important are the connections with? Uh- pork producers um, for you, and do you you have some connections that you can tell us about?
0: Yeah, look, look, I've got a
1: a few uh, pork connections. The the main one
0: is uh, Judy Crow from Western Plains. I've been dealing with her for many years. In fact, uh, um, she came to to the restaurant 20 years ago um, as a farmer and and said, you know, as a producer, saying, look, we we, we grow pigs. Um, You chefs use them. What do you want from us? How can we make our product? Uh, better for you. And the thing that I came up with is uh, suckling pigs. You know, I I wanted little baby suckling pigs because um, you can only get 13 kilo. They, they call them suckling pigs. It's a long time since they were suckling. Um, so I'm, I'm able to get, you know, anything from four, five-day-old pigs. I know you're going to get a lot of death threats over this one. Trust me, they're delicious. Everything up to about two months. So they're about four to five kilos, which is a beautiful. I call it a plate-sized pig because, you know, you can fit it on a nice big platter and, you know, it's great for a romantic dinner for four or five or ten people. It's great. I love that kind of stuff. But to me, it's, it's, it's all about using that entire animal. And the thing about a pig, you use everything. I mean, I've, I've cooked up, you know, crumbed pigtails before, um, used everything from the offal of the pig, you know, all the way up to, you know, the pig's head and the pig's ears. I make a crispy, um, crispy pig's ears with balsamic vinegar and chili, um, the snout, the head, everything is usable on a pig and that's what I like about it.
1: I want to talk about sort of what you've created both with your restaurants and also um, on on TV and the various things that you do. But uh, take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family?
0: Well, look, I come from quite an interesting family. And, and if you look at me, if you see a picture of me, you know, red head, blue eyes, you know, pink or white skin, whatever you call it, um, I actually have quite an unusual food background. Look, look. my, my mother's family is Italian, um, but it's a bit unusual the way they, they, where they grew up. Um, my mother and uh, my, my grandmother was born in Cairo of Sicilian descent. So she was born and grew up in, in Cairo in the Middle East. Um, my grandfather comes from the north of Italy, a little village uh, called Telver in Alta Aldige, right in the north on the border of Austria. He, uh, you know, was in the North African Corps on the Italian side, got captured by the British, escaped, uh, met up with my grandmother in Cairo. They got married then they moved to Ethiopia and had my uncle and mother... And then they moved to, uh, to Carlton in, uh, just around the corner from the restaurant is now. So that's, that's one side. So I, from, from her, and I grew up in that kitchen with my nonna, one of the best cooks in the world. So she would cook all the, all this sort of, this mixture of, of, of great Italian food, but also this Middle Eastern and North African food. She was a beautiful cook. So I grew up, grew up eating all that. And it wasn't until, you know, I started cooking that I realized that Baba Ganoush is not Italian. It's actually Middle Eastern. So, so that was amazing and you know we ate she would make fresh pasta and you know my grandfather grew stuff in the garden and that was that was incredible but the other side of my family my father's side he was a chef uh, my grandfather was a chef that was trained at the Savoy hotel in London in 1932 um so he grew up to you know um he had he was telling me that he had worked under chefs that worked for Escoffier you know the great chef from 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 London Um, So he uh, spent years in in the kitchens there in in England and France and then after the Second World War, immigrated with his family to Australia and set up a a restaurant in um, the Belzac in in East Melbourne and then went from there. But they were also vegetarians, really strict vegetarians. So I had this… You know, just this crazy, um, you know, French cookery, all vegetarians on one side and the Italian Middle Eastern on the other. And you look at me and you would think, you know, a a chocolate milkshake and a ham sandwich is about as extravagant as I always go. And then on top of that, we um, this is going to blow your mind actually. When I was a young boy, my father was in the Air Force. So I grew up in Malaysia um, and, you know, from the age of – four to seven or something. So I grew up eating a lot of um, Asian food uh, Malaysian Malaysia is the best place to eat in Asia for food. It's incredible. So I had all this stuff together. So I mean, put me into a kitchen and throw any cuisine at me. And it's I feel quite natural with it. So that that I think has helped me so much in my career because everything's possible, everything's natural to me. And, and there's there's hardly anything that I wouldn't put in my mouth. And stop and think about that one. But um just just you know be careful with that one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: When when did you first sort of get the inkling that, you know, a career as a chef was a path that you wanted to follow? And do you remember that sort of the first sort of time you became an apprentice and worked in a commercial kitchen?
0: Well, yeah, I actually, um, during my, uh, my schooling, I, I sort of, I was put up a year, so I sort of it was about a quarter of the way through my year eleven. I was going to a you know grammar school, lesson and Grammar in uh, in Melbourne, and it was decided that my services were no longer required at the school. So, um, you know, I was always mucking around. I wasn't doing anything there. It was just useless me being there. So I dropped out of school, and you know, Dad set me send set me down and said, "Go do something." I'd always liked flying, so I went and got my pilot's license you know, at 16, because my dad didn't want me sitting around. And he said, okay, now you got to pay for him. So I went and got a job in a kitchen to pay for my flying lessons. Um, but, you know, the flying lessons sort of dropped off and the, the work in the kitchen kept on going. I went back to school, finished my VCE, and then, you know, everyone was thinking I was going to go on to flying or uni or something. But I actually turned around and said to everyone, you know, to the horror of everyone that, you know, I'm going to take up a, an apprenticeship in a, in a kitchen. And in those days, you know, to be an apprentice – in a kitchen, you know, as opposed to going to university or flying a plane around, they thought I was bananas because, you know, it's not like it is today. It was just a dirty, scruffy old kitchen, you know, usually some drunk old German chef yelling at you and throwing a knife at you or something. It's, um, but, you know, it, it's as it's turned around, it's, you know, cooking in kitchens has become quite a popular thing now. It's exciting. It's still – you still get drunk old Germans trying to throw things at you, but um, it's it's just, um, you know, there's a lot more you can do with this life now.
1: What were well, the really – important sort of stages early on in your chefing career that helped sort of um, forge a career for you and set you on a path?
0: Look, for me, it was, um, you know, that thirst for knowledge, that thirst for skills. Um, you know, cooking is, re- is really a, it's a trade, It's a skills-based industry. So if you're in the same pub cooking the same schnitzel and the same deep-fried prawns and, you know, the same stuff, you know, for five, six, ten years – you're not going to learn nothing, mate, as uh, as they say to you. Um, you've got to keep moving around and, um, and you've just got to keep, you know, going into challenging places. You know, I was able to work at the Victorian Arts Centre, which had, you know, 70 chefs, multiple kitchens, pastry departments, all those sorts of things, hotel kitchens. So by moving around every few years and travelling overseas and, you know, going to different kitchens and challenging, challenging yourself to work in different kitchens all, all over the place with different people, you pick up a lot of skills. And not necessarily cooking skills. You get a lot of those, but you also pick up on skills how to deal with people. We all watch, you know, people like Gordon Ramsay screaming and yelling and, you know, all that violence and stuff. Really, you know, you learn once you've seen enough of it, it that it doesn't really work, you know. You sort of, you know, discipline's great in kitchens, but you sort of learn, okay, well, that's how that person's treating me. I hate their guts. I'm never going to frigging work for them again, and I'll never treat anyone the way that they're treating me. And you sort of package that up and take it with you. And when you got the, get the opportunity to, you know, in a leadership role, you know, you unpack that little thing and you sort of think, you know, how am I going to deal with people? Because that's what, you know, hospitality is all about. It's all about people. It's about teamwork. And if you've got some belligerent bastard, you know, making everyone's life miserable, you no longer have that beautiful team, that, 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 that beautiful team of the front of house and back of house working together and, you know, everything goes beautifully. So that's important for me.
1: You've had La Luna Bistro for over two decades now. Well, tell us about the beginnings of that and and putting that together.
0: Oh look, um, well, I decided that I didn't want to work for anyone anymore. I'd had enough, and I'd always wanted to have my own place. So I managed to borrow hundred thousand dollars. I don't know how anyone gave me hundred thousand dollars because I probably didn't didn't deserve it in those days. Um, I borrowed the money, um, got the lease on a site, which is La Luna Bistro and uh, spent all of that money setting it up. Um, it was pretty, you know, I had pretty rough around the edges. I had to paint everything and, you know, I made the tables myself and a few other things, but that was fantastic. You know, I got the kitchen running and it was up to me to come up with some really nice food and I just wanted to do simple food. I wanted to make some handmade pasta, you know, a little bit of meat and I wanted to make the sort of place where people could come, you know, once, twice a week, you know, come on a regular basis instead of, you know, once a year it's your big celebratory, you know, place to go to. I want it to, to be a really easy place to eat, um, have a glass of wine, have 10, you know, that sort of place. And it's really – that sort of thing is – is is it's evolved. It's still got the same feeling to it, but the place has evolved incredibly along the way. I mean, all the meat we make, we dry age now and all the small goods and stuff, that's all come over the last, you know, probably 18 years and we've got really good at that side of it. But to me it's still – you know, you come into my house, my job is to make you feel warm and fuzzy and give you a lovely meal, some nice wine, lovely service, um, great food and, and a great feeling. So when you walk out the door, it's like, geez, I can't wait to come back there. That's, that's what restaurants are about to me.
1: Running your own uh, restaurant is a little bit different to running a kitchen for someone else. What, what were the challenges and what surprised you about having your own business?
0: Um, look, the one of the one of the most important things and I wish I had paid attention to school was accounting accounting and I tell everyone oh you know I want to do some I want to go into business well mate take take a week off and go uh, learn a little bit about bookkeeping and accounting because the numbers are really really important often you find and I talk to a lot of chefs that you know that I'm going to open a restaurant I'm going to change the way people think about food I'm going to you know set my you know set my name up as being the best chef yeah that sounds good but really, you know, if you're putting all your money into a business, you need to be smart about it. It's a business. So you need to make money. You need to figure out a way of making money. And, and look, you know, you need to start somewhere. And where you finish is, you know, that's years down the track, but you need to start somewhere so you've got the good, the fundamentals there so you can start the business up, keep it operating. You've got cash flow for the first six, 12 months, and then, bang, off you go again. But how many restaurants do you see where a chef starts it up six months, 12 months, two years later, it's gone? Um a lot of reasons for it, but um, you know, if you've got a if you've got a handle on the financial part of it, it just makes life so much easier. Then of course, you know, you need to have the skills to be able to cook a, you know, put put together a decent menu that people will be able to um, you know, come along and, and enjoy. Um, you know, a little bit for everyone and then you've got to be able to the skills of managing people is really important um that's probably one of the most important things if you can manage people and get people to believe in you and, and go along the journey with you you've got it you've got it made um i mean you know if you think you're going to scream and yell from the kitchen you know, we might as well give up now but you know that's probably the best thing and, and, and just the love for the business long hours um hard work um it's grueling at times and you know, just when you think you've had your worst day ever, then the next day it, it gets even worse, you know. so But if you can get through all of those things and you get to the end of the week, it's like, fuck, there's nothing else I would do. Well, then that's it. You belong, you know. You've got no choice. I can't do anything else, you know. I love it. You know, if everything if everything burnt down tomorrow, I'd get up the next day and just start again. That's just,
1: just the way it is. You've uh, created so many incredible events and cooked all over Australia and all over the globe. Is there, is there any sort of event? Or um, things that you were part of that you can tell us about.
0: Well, look, uh, being invited to go over to James Beard House in New York twice was a pr- pretty big thing for me. I, I like because that's um. It's quite. I didn't. Really, I knew it was quite a prestigious thing the first time I was invited over for, and I sort of went over with with uh with a with another chef who was helping me out, and you know we stopped off on the way and had a couple of dinners, and and every time we talk to chefs over there because you know they always come and have a chat. Chefs are like that. It's like a brotherhood, you know, or sisterhood. You know, whenever you go to their restaurant and they get to know your chef, they straight out they drag everything out for you. But they would say the Americans would say. Oh my goodness! Congratulations, that, that's outstanding. And so that was quite a big thing for me, and to go back and do it again, I thought that was incredible. Um, you know, you're in this little house in, in um, you know, in, in, in New York City. Um, it's set up as like a, a, a big restaurant, and uh, seats about uh, uh, eighty or ninety people. You know, you have a cocktail party. You've got this amazing little kitchen, and every chef who is anyone in the world has been through this kitchen. So it's an incredible place. And and then you cook a you know a dinner, um, get up and have a chat with everyone. And um it was just a just an amazing experience. And just being in New York as well, which is the center of the universe is fantastic. And then from that, I suppose the other thing that I really enjoyed, this is comes down to the TV side of things, was um being on Iron Chef USA. Um it was what, what one of, one of those things I'd always wanted to be on. It was always one of my goals and, you know, to be invited to, um, to be a contestant on there. Um, but they didn't put me up against one Iron Chef. They put myself and two other Australian chefs up against three Iron Chefs. Um, so we competed uh, simultaneously with, with three of them. So um, And they only beat us by half a point, which I think it was rigged, but um, it took three of them to beat us. So uh, there you go. That tells you how, how good we are. <laughs>
1: What, what was the pressure of cooking in that Iron Chef environment like compared to in a commercial kitchen? Uh,
0: look, um, commercial kitchens, you sort of feel yeah, – I mean, that's where we belong. That's a natural environment for a chef to put them in a commercial kitchen. And, look, you can take a chef out of one commercial kitchen, put them in another. You take a five-minute walk around, bang, I've got it. You know, you know where the equipment is. You know, where, well, you know what's going on. Um, You've got your menu and off you do That's what you do normally. However, to step into a studio – Kitchen is a completely different thing altogether, because not only do you have the pressure of actually cooking something, you have TV cameras. You've got hosts talking to you. You're mic'd up, so anything you say is is captured. Um, so you have to be really careful with that. And then you know you've got a whole lot of other crew around. Um, you know, and there's and you're not a, it's it's not a regular kitchen. It's a it's a studio kitchen, and there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of everything going on. So it's quite a it, it is a completely different different scenario. It's like taking you and I and putting us in the front seat of a jumbo jet at 35,000 feet across the Atlantic and saying, okay, boys, off you go. Um, it's that sort of thing. It is really – you're really out of your league. And having done as much TV as I had done, probably 12, 13 years of TV before I did Iron Chef, I was, I was petrified. I was really nervous. So for someone who hadn't done TV before, they would just be, yeah, they'd be, they'd be on that 747, I can tell you that.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> let's talk about television for for a second. You've done many shows and um, people are very familiar with you on Australian television. Where, where did it all start? Where was the first step into that world?
0: Oh, look, the, one of the first things I did was um, was with Burt Newton on um, On TV, he used to do the the show on a morning show on Channel Ten, and so I I managed to do a a segment with him. But I I started to get a little bit of attention um, on with the media, so I took on an agent. But that was my first real gig with him. So, you know, I'd been doing a comedy show with some other guys, you know, about making sausages. So I bought a few of those little gags and and bits of equipment along. And if you can see it on YouTube, it's actually quite funny. But I brought some of those things along and put them under the bench so he didn't know they were coming. I, You know, as part of my research of going on the show, I kept an eye on, you know, some of the chefs that had been on there. And if you're not prepared... And if you're not really organised, he would just walk all over them. You know, it's like you can see he's a professional. You're in, you're in his world. So I did a lot of, you know, a lot of practice with it and had these, you know, like a big caulking gun and, you know, like seven metres of pink lycra sausage to show you how to tie the sausage so I had all these gags in there ready for him. And he's been, he was just an absolute professional. So you, you hardly needed to feed him a line and he was off. Um, and so I had all these things. And by the end of it, um, the camera stopped and he came over and said, Adrian, that was outstanding. You really did well uh, with this. And I can see you made an effort. That was, that was sort of my, my first thing. and it was, To me, it was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, you need to do it properly. And, you know, I'm stepping into his world. So, you know, for him to say that was was it's sort of like an eye-opener for me, but it also it was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it really well. But that was one of the first things I did. And then after that was Ready, Steady, Cook, which was, you know, that was good good fun as well. And then we did Boys Weekend, um, which is – that was a lot of fun. Manu Fidel, Gary Megan, myself and Miguel Cascales traveling around Australia. Um, we, my liver was a bit – Drained after that one had to get a transplant, I think, but, um, it's just, we had a lot of fun and and I think it comes out in the show. Um, yeah. And then after that was secret meat business. And you know, I've done a few other bits and pieces, but they're my main sort of shows. Oh, then, then there's good chef, bad chef, which I've been doing for 12 years now. So, um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of TV actually. I feel like I do more TV than, 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 than bloody restaurants. You know, (laughs) it's a lot of fun.
1: Well, what's it like? What's it like having trying to balance, you know, the foundation that you have with the restaurant world and and the world of sort of TV chef? Is it, is it difficult to manage the two? Um,
0: comes down to my, one of my earlier points: if people, if you've got the right people around you, you can do anything. Um, cause, cause really, um, because because really, because I go for a couple of months and film TV shows. Um, you know, I leave the restaurants. So I've got really good people running them. I'm, I'm communicating every day with them on the phone or I might pop in later on, but but I know them, I trust them. Um, and so I'm quite comfortable to hand the restaurants or the venues over to them while I'm filming. And they know that, you know, I'm under a lot of stress with the filming, so, you know, solve the problems and, you know, and, and then get on with it. Um, and that's the attitude they have. So together it, it allows me to do so much. By having those uh, those good people around so look it, it's the TV stuff is quite stressful and you, you put in a lot of effort it's quite hard work, um, but you know I love doing it, and knowing that that at at the, at the venues I have an amazing team looking after things. it just makes me feel so much better um you know i 'm comfortable. Um, that that's, that's probably the best thing for me is, is, is having everything else in place. I mean, even the, the family, you know, they know when I'm filming that that's, you know, maybe a little bit grumpy at times, but they're really understanding of me. Um, you know, I'm up early in the morning and home late at night. They, 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 they're really understanding. So I've got the people around me and the environment around me that make it work really, really well.
1: Uh, at the top of the show, we talked about the fact that you're kind of the unofficial baron of bacon or um, king of pork. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about pork. You, you did mention the suckling pigs, and, you know, it only takes half a second on social media to see these events that you put on with the suckling pigs um, and how incredible they look. Um, tell us about cooking a suckling pig and how to get the best out of it.
0: Look, ro- roasting roasting pork, if you want to get crackling, um, what I'm about to say sort of fits in with most pork that we cook, you know. So if you want to get that crackling, one of the one of the tricks is buy good pork, buy Australian pork, okay? That's probably the first thing. If it's got a bone in it, it's just going to be Australian. So that's one of the things we like to like to promote first is Australian. I mean, the next thing is is, you know, making sure that the skin dries out. If you're buying your pork packaged, um, the Suckling Pig isn't packaged, but the thing I do is put it into the fridge or your cool room, take the plastic off it so that the skin starts to dry out. And what you'll see is it goes from that that soft, white, pinky sort of look to a harder, slightly yellowy look, and that's, that's the skin drying out. That's really important because if the skin is dry, it's going to help it to crackle a lot easier. And then what I do is, you know, have the oven on flat out, warp drive, 230, 240 degrees Celsius. I say 220, but I just turn it up, you know, the hotter the better. Um, And I rub lots of oil, lots of salt on the outside, more salt than you would imagine. Push it on the outside, rub it on the outside, and then straight into the oven. And what you're doing with that is that oil and the salt helps to dry out the skin and help it crackle. And that hot, intense, um, oven at the beginning for that 20-25 minutes helps to get the crackle going. That's really important at the start. I find if you dry it out, get that crackle bubbled up and blistered up, then you can turn the oven down after 20-25 minutes, you know, to 165 degrees Celsius and then you cook the pork all the way through. I always tell people use a digital thermometer. When it gets to 72 degrees Celsius on the inside of it, bang, it's cooked. It's never going to be overcooked. And when it's cooked, like, you know, to 72, it's going to be moist and juicy and tender. And the other thing is letting it rest. You know, letting it rest for half the cooking time. So when you cut into it, all the juices stay in the meat where they belong. Now, suckling pigs, same thing. The only thing I would do differently, I put it on a wire rack. I put some aluminium foil and herbs on the inside of it just to hold the belly out so it looks nice and plump. I put a little skewer into the, to the legs of it just to hold it up. Um, and the skewer goes through the leg and into the wire rack underneath. And it sort of, it sort of frames it up so it doesn't, doesn't move around in the oven. I'm, of course, using, uh, larger ovens, you know, the 900 wide ovens. Um, you know, and, and basically the pork goes in. I put a little bit of foil around the ears and around the tail to stop them from burning and into the oven goes. They go and, and they take about, about 55 minutes to cook a whole suckling pig at about four to five kilos, which sounds sounds like not much, but it's actually, um, you know, it, they're, they're, they're beautiful. And the thing I love when you open that oven up and you see the fat boiling next to the skin, you know, around the belly area, it's just delicious. And everyone loves eating a suckling pig. I'm almost starting to foam at the mouth now. I just was thinking maybe I need some suckling. I oh, just just looking around for some pork. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you've got me going as well. For for a chef that gets the whole sort of carcass in and uses every sort of cut, is there a favourite cut that might be sort of a, a, a rarer cut um, that you like to cook and you could tell us about and how you, how you treat it?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my favourite, my, look, one of the things I've been doing um, look, basically, because I, I, I can cook anything with a pulse. That's guaranteed. But, you know, one of the things that I do, um, I, I've done something for um, – for an, there's like an apprentice group that comes every year. It's, um, you know, proud to be a chef there. Fonterra put it together. But there's uh, 30, 35 young apprentices that come to my restaurant every year. And one of the things I serve up to them is pig's head. So I, I'll, I'll get the pig's head. I'll steam it for about four hours or so at a low temperature – and then take it out, let it cool down a little bit, and then back in the oven, similar um, recipe to what I did before, hot oven, salt and oil on it, then turn it down. It takes about uh, about 45 minutes to cook a whole pig's head, but it crackles up, the ears pop out, and there is so much meat on that pig's head, and I do it for a couple of reasons. One, it's really nice, really bloody delicious, uh, rich and flavoursome. But to me, you know, as I I usually give a talk to all the apprentices there, it's it's like that pig's head cost me four to six dollars. It cost me nothing, but I'm able to feed, you know, eight, eight to ten of you with one pig's head. And look at all the good stuff that comes out of it. And it's sort of like, you know, it's one of those things that we would – a pig's head, you discard it. But, you know, there's so much in there and why would you waste it? And it is delicious. So I'm just trying to make that point with them and they love it. You know, halfway through, they probably had a little bit of sauce as well, but they're into it trying to bust it open so they can get the brains out of it. And uh, it's a fantastic thing. They're they're, they're running around the room with the pigs, you know, the skulls on their heads. It goes almost Viking, you know, medieval kind of stuff. But, you know, I think they get the message. They're chefs. You've got to let them go.
1: <laughs> you mentioned uh, the incredible levels that you've uh, achieved with small goods that you make as well and um, constantly evolving with that. What, what's what's probably the, your favourite um, small good that you produce on site?
0: look I like them a lot and I'm just I'm going to give you a couple of them one would be um and I'll, I'll come back to the pig's head again when I was 15 my grandfather taught me how to make brawn um which is using the pig's head and you make a, a brawn I'll make a uh, I'll make a, a brawn today it's a little bit different it's a galantine, but that's one of my favorite things because it's just that's something that my grandfather passed down to me and I'm able to replicate it you know 40 years later um so I really, really like that one. The other thing is um, the undulia. We've been making a lot of that lately, which is if I can describe it as as a salami that's spreadable. It's very soft and spreadable with some olive oil and lots of chili and peppers in it. That's one of my favourite things at the moment. It's um, yeah, it's it's spicy. And I had some the other day that really it burnt a hole in both ends. I can tell you that it was really hot. That's one of my favourite things at the moment. Um, But also, you know, like the prosciutto is um, one of the things that we make at at La Luna and we make about 70 legs a year. It's sweet, it's salty and the prosciutto that we make, um, you can't get anywhere else in the world. There's only two venues we can get it is um, at Bouvier Bar & Grill and La Luna Bistro. Um, And to me, that's that's a special thing.
1: You've built this incredible career with your restaurants and also the TV world. What do you love about what you do?
0: No day is the same uh, you know I, I can be going I could be in Brisbane one day where we're looking at setting up a restaurant there. I can be you know on a in a TV studio I can be in the kitchen doing a function I can be you know tr- driving somewhere to do a function in a regional town um, you know or I could be taking the day off and you know fixing motorbikes or something. No, not one of my days is ever the same, and I'm never in the same place. Um, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I've, that's what I love about it. And, you know, I have a lot of say in what I do now, um, and I, I basically pick fun jobs if, you know, I have a prerequisite. But, you know, they're either paying me a hell of a lot of money or it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a lot of fun to do, and, and usually I'll go for that. It's a lot of fun to do, and the people I'm going to be with are fantastic. So, um, that, that's that's probably the best thing. I mean, look. Um, last on Friday, I was at the Gold Coast on a um, an amazing boat um, with a hundred guests, and myself, Manu Fidel, and Colin Faznich and Spencer Patrick, four chefs that I've been working with for years and known for years. We we're on the boat cooking for all these people. We had a ball. It was fantastic. Um, you know, there was hardly any. I think they just paid our accommodation and our expenses. But the uh, the opportunity to get together, I was like, yep, we all all put our hand up to go for it. So it was a fantastic, fantastic event. That's what I love doing.
1: Well, Adrian, it's an absolute honour to have you and hear a little bit of your story on The Crackling today. Um, Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon.
0: An absolute pleasure, Huck, and we look forward to talking again.
1: This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep, Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.